Well, our, our sermon text is uh, printed for you in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, otherwise look in your scriptures there in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. Mark 3, verses 22 to 30. And I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word here this morning. Mark 3. Mark writes, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us here this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Increase our faith, make us grow. We pray that if anybody does not yet know you, that you might open their eyes to believe in Christ even this morning, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if if you've been a a Christian for any matter of time, any amount of time, uh, and have been reading your Bible for any amount of, of time, Um, there's probably not much doubt that you have more than likely come across a passage or two or three or four that you found difficult to understand or explain. You've probably even come across a few sayings in your Bible uh, that caused you some, some concern or maybe even some anxiety about. This might be one of those passages. For many people, this passage that we looked at, the, the last few verses especially, Uh, or one of those passages. Uh, This one we're looking at this morning contains one of the more difficult and perplexing sayings found in in all of the Bible. In verse 29, what does the Lord speak of there? He speaks of an unforgivable sin. Think about that. An unforgivable sin. Phrases like that usually tend to get our attention, don't they? You hear that, your ears perk up, and with good reason. And we're going we're gonna to deal with that, I think, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, with that part of our text as we go along the text in order. We're going to try to deal with the whole passage, not just that one question. But we're going to look at at least three things from our passage this morning. We're going to look at first, blasphemy against Jesus in verse 22. We're going to look at binding the strong man in the verses that follow that, verses 23 to 27. And then finally, we're going to see blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in verses 28 to 30. And we're going to see, Lord willing, what that does and does not mean. Well, the first thing that we see in the text in verse 22 is blasphemy against Jesus. Back in verse 21, the previous text we looked at last Sunday, we saw that even Jesus' family had some pretty harsh words, maybe well-intended words, but harsh words about Jesus. There we, they saw the crowds. What was happening? Remember the big crowds were kind of overwhelming him? 
Jesus told the disciples, keep a boat ready, you know, in case he needs a fast getaway. I mean, they, they were, the, the text says they, he was in danger of being thronged or crushed by this crowd. They were all trying to touch him. You know, this, we don't know how many people were in this crowd, but Jesus evidently, from the text last week, in the previous verses to this one that we're looking at now, there was a very real danger that he might be crushed. And so they kept the boat ready. But what did his family say when they saw all this? Verse 21, his family said, or were saying, quote, he is out of his mind, or he is beside himself. Something's not quite right with our, with our Jesus, is kind of what they were saying. I mean, look at what he's doing. Look at all these crowds following him and teaching, casting out demons. They, were, they thought he'd lost it. It's another way of, of putting it the way that we would say it. And it's, a, it's a sad and harsh estimation of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ from his own family, his very own family. You know, the verses that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks that end this chapter, I think are to be read in light of that. When, when people come to him and say, hey, your mother and brothers you know, are looking for you, that's what they were looking for him for. They're still trying their intervention. They're trying their rescue mission. They're trying to get their boy out of harm's way. That, that explains Jesus' reply to them, you know, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God are my mother and brothers. He wasn't being harsh. He was saying he has work to do that he can't even let his own family interfere with. Well, here in our text this morning, there's another group of people, not his family, not people that loved or cared for him, that also oppose and misconstrue the ministry of Jesus. Here another group of people speak ill of Christ and his work, and this time it's the scribes in verse 22. Now, who are the scribes? Who are the scribes in your Bibles? They are the religious authorities of, of Israel at the time. Uh, Mark tells us they had come down from Jerusalem. Now in verse 22, when it says they came down from Jerusalem, what's that, what is he trying to tell us? He's not just saying where they came from. I think the indication there is that this was some kind of, an, kind of an official visit. The scribes weren't just some random Jews. They were, they were kind of the people in authority. They were the religious experts. And what they were probably doing was doing some kind of a fact-finding mission. They were coming to make a decision or a determination officially or a judgment about who this Jesus is and what he was doing and, and what, what was going on. Why was he attracting such a big following? And what did they decide? Mark doesn't spend a lot of time uh, beating around the bush here. Verse 22, he says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. You know, if you're familiar with this text at all, uh, maybe it's lost its shock value to us. But that should be a shocking thing to hear someone say. It'd be shocking if someone said that about you, wouldn't it? You're possessed by a, by a demon. They said this about Jesus Christ himself. That's their estimation of Jesus based upon what they saw with their eyes in their hardness of heart. Now, to make a, as if to make it worse, Mark says it again in verse 30. He says, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So he bookends the passage, first verse and last verse, with the words of these unbelieving scribes. And the tense of the verb in both, in both those verses, 
the ESV translates it as we're saying. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, it's, it indicates an ongoing thing. They didn't just show up in Jerusalem, get, get one look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's demon-possessed. They were saying this repeatedly. This, this was not just some slip of the lip. You know, sometimes you know, we all, as the scripture says, we all err in what we say. And sometimes we get upset about something and we say something in the heat of the moment that we really don't mean or really we realize it comes out wrong and we turn back and we say, you know what, I shouldn't have said that. I've done that. You've probably done that. We've all done that more than once, maybe more than we care to admit. And if that was what was happening here, we might give them a pass. You know, they're upset. They've had a long journey. It's hot. Who knows? You know, and they see Jesus and, oh, you know, he's probably demon-possessed. We don't want to deal with this. That's not this. This is a settled conviction of these scribes, not a rash overstatement said in the heat of the moment. This was their settled conviction and judgment upon the ministry of their own Messiah. Think about that. that this, this was something they had determined in their hearts, that Jesus must be demon-possessed. Their own Messiah, the Son of God himself, they accused of being possessed by a demon. It's kind of hard to overstate how serious of a thing this accusation was. They accused Jesus Christ himself of being demon-possessed. They attributed his miracles, his casting out of demons, to Satan, to the prince of demons himself. They're saying the ministry of Christ was satanic. There are satanic ministries in the world today. But to accuse Jesus of that, to accuse the Christian church of that, either would be something hard to overstate the seriousness of it. Now, That's some serious hardness of heart on their part. That's some serious blindness of the eyes. You know, Jesus, not for no reason, did Jesus say, call them the blind leading the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they're going to fall into a ditch. These were the experts, and they were blind, and they were hard of heart. And notice this, they don't deny that Jesus cast out demons, do they? That's remarkable. You would think that they would chalk it up to some kind of a parlor trick, that Jesus was deceiving people in doing that. Now, they would certainly hold that Jesus was deceptive. They didn't deny that Jesus cast out demons. They didn't try to explain it away. They affirmed it. They affirmed that he actually did cast them out. What do they say? By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. They admit that's what he did, that it was real, that it wasn't fake. But rather than taking that reality that they affirmed as, to, as, as proof of who he really was, the Son of God and the Messiah, they chalked it up to demonic influence, to demonic possession. And that brings us to the second thing in our text. Uh, and that's Jesus' answer to those scribes. He doesn't let that charge go by without answering it back. In verses 23 to 27, Mark writes this, He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Now in verse 23 when Mark says that Jesus, quote, called them to him. It's kind of ironic, but he uses the exact same word he used back in verse 13 when he called the twelve to himself to name them as apostles. It's a word that really has the idea of a summons. He summons them to himself. He doesn't just call out to them, hey, you, you know, it's you, come here. It's a summons. It's an official summons, an exercise of authority in calling them to himself. Now, Jesus is summoning these scribes as one having authority. Here, he's going to give his own decision regarding their words about his ministry. When Mark says that Jesus spoke to them in verse 23 in parables. Now, you've, maybe if you've read your Bible enough, you, you're familiar with some of the parables in Matthew 13. You know, a sower went out to behold, a sower went out to sow, and there's four kinds of, of soil, and some seed fell on this kind of soil and that kind of soil. This, this isn't that kind of a parable. The word, the word parable means to lay something alongside something else. It's just a means of comparison. It can mean just a metaphor or an analogy, and that's what he's doing here, he's using an analogy, or three analogies or illustrations, to make his point by way of comparison. And he starts in verse 23 with what should be obvious, but apparently wasn't to them. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That would seem to be an impossibility, wouldn't it? In their stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth about Jesus Christ and his ministry, in their desperation to find a rationale, for rejecting him and going their own way, they had been reduced to embracing even the most glaring contradictions in logic. They were so hardened of heart and so refused to believe what they saw with their own eyes about who Jesus was that they resorted to even contradictions of their own thinking in trying to refuse acknowledging who he was. And that's really the way it always has been with the unbelief of skeptics. Not just in his day, but in our day as well, isn't it? You know, many people scoff in our day, especially our scientific age, with microwaves and airplanes and all kinds of things. Uh, you know, people mock at the idea of God being the creator. They mock and scoff at the Genesis account of God's creation in the Bible. And yet, what do they often hold as being the most eminently reasonable, logical explanation for the existence of the universe in which we live. What's the most, what do these rational people often put in your face and laugh at you, and they say, basically, the universe just kind of happened. It just is. And that's the scientific, rational, logical, reasonable explanation that scientific minds find comfort in. It just kind of happened. It just came out of nowhere. It just came from nothing. In other words, something came from what? Nothing. That is a flat contradiction of all human reason and logic if I've ever heard one. And yet that's the rational explanation. Hermann Bovink, the old Dutch theologian, called this the, the deification of matter. They refuse to believe in God, so they believe this is God. That this created itself, that all the stuff in the universe just kind of happened all on its own, out of nowhere. Uh, they, they make stuff God. That's really the only other choice you have. And so you don't reject God, you make God into something else, even if they don't want to admit it. Well, that's kind of what these 
men are doing here. Now, they aren't, they aren't denying God as the creator like people in our day often do, but they're denying things and, and substituting contradictions in their place just like these, like the scoffers do in our day. And in verses 24 to 26, Jesus goes on to illustrate his point using the word divided three different times. Verses 24, 25, and 26. If by Satan's power Jesus was casting out Satan, then what? Satan's kingdom is a divided kingdom. Verse 24. His house would then be a divided house. Verse 25. And even Satan himself would then be divided against himself. Verse 26. It's an impossibility to think this way. Satan would be throwing away and destroying his own kingdom if that's what was going on. If Jesus, if he was giving Jesus the power to cast himself out, it wouldn't make any sense. Nothing could stand. If, if that's the case, three times also in our text he says these things could not stand. Satan's kingdom would be no more. His house would be destroyed. He himself would be destroyed. And then in verse 27, what does Jesus do? He gives the real explanation. If you want a right understanding of what Jesus came to do, look at verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Who's the strong man that Jesus is talking about here? It's the devil. It's Satan. He's the strong man. Who's the one that's tying him up and robbing his house? Kind of an odd metaphor for what Jesus came to do. Who's the robber? It it sounds backwards, but Jesus is the robber that ties up the strong man and plunders his house. What's he saying? Again, remember, it's 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 a parable. It's an analogy. What is Jesus doing here when he's casting out demons, performing miracles, and teaching the people? He's effectually plundering Satan's kingdom. He's stealing his people back. He's rescuing people from slavery. 1 John 3.8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was, was what? Was to destroy the works of the devil. If you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, as I know some of you are, the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? We, we, you, know, you might remember a, a good chunk of that answer is that I am not my own but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ but later on in that same answer part of it is he's rescued me from Satan because this is what he came to do he came to destroy the works of Satan that's part of our comfort in life and death that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous light Jesus came To destroy the works of the destroyer. He came to set things right. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Colossians 1.13-14 says says it this way. He, Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred or translated us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what God does and does through Jesus Christ to the lost. He takes us, it's like a new exodus. He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness, rescues us from slavery, and brings us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
And notice the clear implication of Jesus' words there in verse 27. What is Jesus in verse 27 claiming about himself? He is telling these scribes, they're looking at one standing before them who is greater than Satan himself. They were looking at and accusing someone of something who was more powerful than Satan himself. None of us could claim that. No man could claim that. Jesus could claim that. He's saying he had the power to bind the strong man. They had no idea who they were messing around with when they said what they said about Christ. And it makes their accusations against him all the more serious. They were speaking evil of the Son of God himself. They were blaspheming against Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. And that brings us to our third and final point, what Jesus talks about in verse 28 to 30, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There in verses 28 to 30, Mark says, or Mark quotes Jesus saying, Truly, or amen, really, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And he adds the explaining note there at the end. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You know, they came to pronounce a judgment of sorts on on Jesus, but here he tells them they were in danger of judgment themselves for doing so. They weren't the ones in charge, as they thought they were. And this, this here is one of those hard sayings of Scripture that has troubled many a sincere believer in Christ. Maybe even you sitting here this morning, maybe some of you at one time or another have wondered to yourself, when you've read a text like this, I hope I haven't done that. Have I done that? You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, the Last Supper. You might remember the Last Supper when Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. It's, it's like the one who's going to do it knows he's going to do it. It doesn't bother him. But the other ones are saying, is it I? That's, that's us when we read this passage a lot of times. If you're a believer in Christ, you think, I hope that's not me. The last thing I'd want to do is blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't want to commit a sin that I couldn't be forgiven of. I know years and years ago I wondered the same thing. When I read this passage, I thought, is it possible that I could have done that? It's the last thing you'd ever want to think about. Is that? And part of the reason for that, I think, is that it just doesn't seem very clear to us what this eternal sin, quote, unquote, is. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the first place? It's not, it's not all very clear. Uh, J.C. Ryle, no less, has said this. He wrote, What then is the unpardonable sin? It must, frankly, it must be frankly confessed that its precise nature is nowhere defined in Scripture. That's part of the problem, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not exactly clear and so, at least to us, the problem isn't the text, the problem is with us. But because we're not sure what it means, that leads to the worry that, oh, maybe I've done that. Is it possible I could have, could have committed that unforgivable sin? Now, it, it's hard to be sure that you haven't done something if you're not quite sure what that something is, isn't it? That's part of the problem that we have. Scholars and commentators down through the, the years and centuries have offered a number of different explanations as to what 
this sin is, as to what it means to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Some of their suggestions I found helpful, others not so, not so much. Um, some, I think, had the tendency to just want to you know, defang, you know, take away all the hard edges of the Scripture. And I don't think that's always a safe path to take. I think if it's a difficult passage, you take it for what it says and work, study with it and do the hard work. Um, but note, note one thing. Jesus does not necessarily say that these scribes have already committed this sin. He does at least indicate they were in danger of doing so. And Mark offers a clarification about it in verse 30, connecting blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with what those scribes were saying when they said Jesus has an unclean spirit. I think verse 30 is meant to be a description, a helpful description of what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe sometimes familiarity with the text can make it harder to understand or think about something objectively. You know, I, I was thinking about it this past weekend and it occurred to me that it never occurred to me before that what I should have expected Jesus to say, but he didn't, I should have expected Jesus to say they blasphemed against him, which they certainly did. But it's not, you would think he would have said, I'm the son of God, and what you just said was blasphemy against me. And it was, but what does he focus on? They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because what did they say? They attributed his works, which were done under the power of the Holy Spirit, to an unclean spirit. They blasphemed the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself. They were basically calling the Holy Spirit himself an unclean spirit. That is technically and literally blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's what that is. That's what they were doing. So if you wonder, you know, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's speaking evil against the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme God the Father. You can blaspheme Jesus as they did here, the Son of God. Blasphemy itself is not a hard word to define. In some way, it's speaking evil, cursing against the name of God. Now, really, this is not much different uh, than, than the language of the third commandment, is it? What's the third commandment? You shall not take Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We read that every first Sunday of the month. And I dare say we probably don't lay much stress on that part of the verse. We don't really think about it. How is it unforgivable? This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think the best understanding of it is to put it this way. Jesus, what is Jesus really doing here? He's underscoring just how serious a sin this really was and is. They weren't just speaking evil of a man. That would still be sinful, wouldn't it? And still be condemnable before a holy God. They were speaking evil about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit himself. That's blasphemy. And so I think the language of that third commandment in Exodus 20 is helpful. I think it's the same kind of language. Now, the Lord in Exodus 20, verse 7, I don't believe the Lord is telling us that if you and I have broken the third commandment, that we can have no hope of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. I do not believe that's what Exodus 20, verse 7 means. And one of the reasons for that is 
You and I have no doubt all, everyone in this room, have broken the third commandment. There probably isn't a person on earth who in some way hasn't broken the third commandment. In some way, and maybe multiple, multiple times, we have probably, not probably, you and I have broken every one of God's commandments in thought, word, and indeed, in some way and at some time in our lives. But we are to know that it's a very serious offense. It's not a little tiny sin. Blasphemy is a serious issue. In Israel, blasphemy was punishable by death. As if to underscore how serious a sin that it really is. And Jesus is letting them know these scribes were in a very dangerous position. They were in a very bad place. Their hearts were so hardened that they could not see the obvious in front of them about who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so they called him evil and even satanic. They were so hardened in their hearts and blind in their eyes, they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to demons. They were calling good evil and evil good. They were mistaking light for darkness and darkness for light. And think about it. These were the religious experts and authorities in Israel at the day, in Jesus' day. That's a scary picture of hardness of heart and sin. And let me say this. I know some commentators, they choose this route. They say, well, this was spoken to them at that time in that particular situation, and so it has no application for us today. That's how they get around it. I don't believe that's the way we're supposed to think of it. But let me say this, and I hope that this sets your heart at ease if this text troubles you this morning and you're a believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have not committed an unforgivable sin. You have not done so. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have not committed an unforgivable sin. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'll go further than that. You cannot commit the unforgivable sin. God doesn't start to save you and then, whoop, sorry. He doesn't forgive parts of your sin. He forgives all of your sin. There is no sin that a genuine believer in Christ can commit. And we can still commit some pretty heinous sins, can't we? Think of King David himself. What did King David commit? Adultery and murder. Pretty, pretty heinous things. And yet he was forgiven. Your heavenly father, there's no sin that your heavenly father will not forgive you of if you are in Jesus Christ by faith. He is not here saying you can lose your salvation or that there's a line that if you're a real believer in Christ that you can possibly cross to which God casts you out. God will preserve you and keep you by the power of faith and by the power of his spirit. If you're a Christian, I don't believe you need to worry that you may have somehow committed this sin without knowledge or that it's possible for you to do so. It's been said many times before, if you are somehow worried or concerned that you may have committed this sin, take heart. The very fact that it bothers you, the very fact that it worries you, is evidence that you have, in fact, not committed it. If you're a believer in Christ, it's proof that your heart is not hardened like these scribes were in our text. These, these scribes in our text weren't worried in their hearts. They weren't troubled in their conscience by what Jesus said. But I will say this, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him alone for salvation from your sins... 
any sin continued on in, in unrepentance and unbelief is one that's not forgiven. But take heart from what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins will be forgiven. Come to him by faith. Come to Christ by faith and know the joy and peace of having all your sins forgiven. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. Even for the difficult passages that we don't always know what to make of them when we first read them. And even if we study them sometimes, there are passages of your word that we, we wrestle with and don't know what to do with. I ask, this, even this morning, that if there is anyone here who is a believer in Christ, who is troubled by this text, that they would, that they would not be troubled by it, that their hearts would be comforted by the gospel, that they would trust that whoever comes to, to Christ, he will by no means cast out. And they would, they would read this text in light of texts like that. And I pray that if anyone here this morning does not yet know you, has not yet come to Christ by faith, that you might open their eyes, that they might see Christ here in the gospel and flee to him by faith and trust in him for salvation from all their sin, that you might grant them the knowledge of forgiveness and the peace and the joy that comes only through that way, not through works, not through the being religious, not through going to church or anything else, but by, by, by genuine faith in Christ and looking to him to have life in his name. For we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.